Good morning and welcome to UK Column viewers and listeners. Um, I'm delighted to be back in the studio today. Uh, my guest is Leon Cryer, the esteemed architect and urban planner, uh, who did an interview with me only really a few days ago. But we both found our interaction so interesting. I, I asked uh, Leon whether he would be prepared to do a, a second interview, and he said he would. And so today we're going to delve deeper into matters to do with cities and architecture and planning. And we're going to try and perhaps delve a little bit further into why this process is now controlled and maybe who's controlling it. So first of all, um, Leon, I'm going to welcome you into the UK Column studio. Well, in, into the link anyway. Good morning. Good morning. I'm very pleased to be back. Okay, well, it's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. Now, many of our uh, many of our viewers and listeners say to us, "We need some uplifting things." And one of the th one of the points that you and I were discussing last time was about um, beautiful architecture and cities. And I pondered on this, and I thought, "What city would I like to put on screen?" And I decided to choose Florence, um, Italy. And um, so this is this is just a, a generic photo of the city. Um, I'm going to ask you for your comment on it. But I went there many, many years ago when I visited La Spezia uh, in Italy with with the Navy. And while we were we were there for that visit, we got the opportunity to see a little bit of Italy. And um, I had the opportunity to visit Florence and I was I was just fascinated with it. I felt it was a beautiful city. I was particularly taken with a, the general setting, the geographical setting of the city. Um, but it was all those lovely terracotta red roofs and the buildings. And even though it was all packed in together, um, when you were in the streets, I still found it an attractive setting. So I'm going to throw this back to you. I chose um, I chose Florence. Actually, I've got an, another shot of it here. Um, this one with a, with a substantial square in the middle, and we can see a change in some of the architecture. Um, but I've got happy memories of this place. And to me, even though many people would say, well, that's a pretty crowded city landscape, to me, it, it was wonderful. What, what's your reaction to my observations? Well, I think it's, it's not just your observation. It's, it's a general feeling. That's why it's one of the main tourist attractions in the world. And I remember when I was a kid, I, my first grand tour through Italy, I wanted to study Romanesque churches in Tuscany. And I went through Florence uh, because it's unavoidable. And I got so attracted by Florence that I stayed there for a week. <laughs> I hadn't been there since my parents took me there. But uh, Florence, it's very interesting because, you know, it's a great city. It has fantastic 19th century suburbs. And the rest is garbage. It's really horrible. And I once, if you take Florence, you take away that the center within the walls, just replace that by a car park. The biggest part of Florence is outside the walls, and it's horrible. And um, so I, I always said this as an example of where the value lies, where the, uh, not only the, 
let's say, the real estate value, but also the spiritual value, the aesthetic value, and also the retail value, is in an area which is really urban as compared to suburb. And uh, I was in charge of planning novelly a huge quarter of the ex-Fiat land. And I, I had been commissioned by the mayor then Morales, who was, whose chief assistant was uh, Giorgio Pucci, who was the founder of Tuscan Greens. That is when the Greens were still green, really interested in culture and, and, and nature instead of making wars around the planet. Um, and uh, we, for six months, it was able, with a very uh, small junta of the, of the mayor, to plan a perfect urban quarter, which was the size of historic, of historic Florence, replacing the factories of Fiat and um, Carapelli and so on. And, but then the mayor lost or retired, and the elections were won by socialists, and they caught my plan. It was caught on the newspaper, La Nazione, Il Piano Creer Fa Schifo. Creer's plan is, you know, four-letter word. <laughs> Unprintable. But in Italian, printed out, Fa Schifo. Right. <laughs> and, and, and now it's built and it's disgusting. The park has become a kind of, uh, they put a huge car park under it and so on. Whereas Florence, you know, 1,000, 2,000 years, 2,000 and more history, uh, has the most interesting architecture which can be described and codified with one page. We had one page to recommend the new architecture and it would have been perfect. And, and there you see how important politics are because that would be welcomed by, by the public and by, by the people in general. But because politics is controlled by very few intellectuals who are kind of terrorists, who don't think that people have the right taste and they should be converted to so-called modern. I mean, we are as modern as them, just look at the dictionary. But they pretend that they have the only legitimacy to design whereas doing traditional architecture would be considered illegitimate and therefore not modern, yeah. which is just a lie. It's even, uh, you know, uh, dictionary-wise uh, wrong. And I, I did in Italy something like 60 projects, and there's only one in, uh, in Alessandria, which was because there was kind of an agreement with the mayor and uh, a fantastic developer was able to do a scheme which was really respectable and which is like a piece of Italy. And, um, but that is when, when politics is so completely controlled by a very small group of perverted people who have absolutely, intellectually, they are zero. They never debate. They don't confront me. No. They don't dare have a, an open discussion because they can't argue. They're just dictators. Whereas we have arguments... To, to justify why we do traditional architecture. It's a rational choice, and also a choice of the heart, because that's what everybody likes, this kind of architecture. This is a very interesting uh, point, and a little bit later, I was going to get on to the subject of, of the planning system here in, in UK, at least, and we'll show the audience, share with the audience, a little bit of who's got a finger in the pie, who's who's helping to control what happens in our city. But um, uh, as an opening 
Um, thank you very much for that. Um, that was Florence anyway. You chose a piece of video to uh, get people interested in the subject. And I, I watched this with great interest. It's very short. It's very to the point. So let's play this little clip and then we can have a chat about it. Architecture changed completely, and it went from designs that complemented the landscape around them to a kind of architecture that clearly hates people, that is designed to oppress the human spirit and make people feel without value, worthless. I think if you brought someone from the streets of Tokyo to the Cotswolds and said, what do you think of that building? He would say, that's beautiful, because beauty is inherent. Every person recognizes beauty. A Shinto temple in Kyoto, I recognize it immediately as beautiful, because it is. It's consistent with the symmetry of nature. Municipal and state buildings were once plainly an expression of a contract between the people yes! and their government of a yes! good faith relationship. <laughs> I, that. I, just, I just thought that. I walked up with my wife in the rain on a village hall and I thought whoever built that cared about the people. It was built by the people who live there for the people who live there and they loved the people who live there because they were related to them or knew them. It was built by peasants without machines. Well, I'm smiling having watched it. I've watched it several times and I love it because it's just so short and sharp emotive and fun. Um, where did, what made you choose this, this clip, Leon? Yeah, because I, I followed Tucker Carlson now for three years because I have most of my work is in the United States. Whenever I mention to my clients, do you listen to Car Tucker Carlson? They say, oh, but he's so radical. <laughs> I say, but I'm much more radical than Tucker Carlson. Uh, no, Tucker is is very interesting person and has enormous charm, and therefore he is also hated very much by, uh, you know, middle class, sort of upper middle class intellectual America. Uh, but he already did two years ago, he did an, um, a 10-minute clip on, on his uh, Tucker Carlson Tonight on federal buildings, comparing, you know, you had on the left a modernist federal court and on the right a traditional a classical federal court building. And um, he had like 20 buildings which came like that. And it's fantastic. But unfortunately, it has been cut from YouTube. I can't find it anymore. It was still available with an, uh, an um, you know, the Wall Street Journal did an, a real nasty piece about it. There you could still look into it, but it's gone. And no, he's, he's excellent. And I'm, I'm surprised that even Russell Brandt <laughs> That seems to agree. <laughs> well, well, this is one of the things that really caught my attention. I, I, I haven't to date, I, for whatever reason, I haven't been a huge fan of Russell Brandt. But in this particular one, he, he's, he's clearly seeing something. And I'm totally agreeing, I think, with what, what he's seeing about the change in architecture. And I'm, I'm going to support him a bit further because uh, having watched the clip, I just went looking for Russell Brand. And what popped up was a Guardian article. And uh, this is the headline by George Monbiot, the, uh, the uh, journalist. I once admired Russell Brand's, but his grim trajectory shows us where politics is heading. And then there's a sub headline here. In an age of distortion, public figures have powerful tools and a responsibility. This is an object lesson in how that can go wrong. And we won't dwell on too much of the text, but um, it says that in 2014, The Guardian asked me to nominate my hero of the year. To some people's surprise, I chose Russell Brand. And then from there on, he, he absolutely slaughters uh, Russell Brand. 
And everything that he's reported, whether it's to do with the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, the Great Reset, Bill Gates, uh, Fauci, the World Health Organization, whatever um, Russell Brand has been talking about, and those things are fact, they're not fiction, but The Guardian is very upset. So I'm going to, uh, today, I'm going to put a marker down and I'm going to stick up for Russell Brand and uh, say well done for that very interesting dialogue with Tucker Carlson. Now, you, you've also picked up on many other people. Well, of course, you've had a lifetime in this field, so uh, you would. But uh, you identified this man to me, uh, James Howard Kunzler. And uh, I went and had a look at his uh, website. Um, we've got uh, an article, Situation Awareness. Now, most of that's about COVID-19. But down in the corner, I noticed um, a book. And if I bring that up on screen, it's actually a collection of oil paintings. Um, but the front page, Beauty and Catastrophe, I thought was a, probably a pretty pertinent image for the sort of discussion that we're having today. But um, you've, you've come across other works by uh, James Kunzler. Well, we are friends. He is one of the most interesting intellectuals I, I came across. He, he wrote the most important book, which struck me, is his uh, uh, The Long Emergency, which like 25 years ago described what would happen with oil peak, you know, talking about the limitation of fossil fuels. And that once we are over the peak, that people imagine it took 200 years to get to the oil peak, but then there will be another 200 years of, uh, you know, to get to zero oil. And that is, you know, his take was saying that uh, once we are over that peak, we'll go into an, a situation of absolute catastrophe because there will be a very powerful uh, a move to... To, to keep that oil and uh, for the for the very privileged and for the armies, but that the rest of the population will no longer be allowed to to move as much as as they are and what he predicted or what he described is actually happening now it 's like it had been a book <laughs> a how to for the future, and he was of course derided because he has an, a fairly uh, flowery uh, style which upsets sort of the, the, the well, so-called well-educated. But um, uh, Jim Künstler is also part of the Congress of New Urbanism, who promote traditional architecture and traditional urbanism. He's a formidable person to, to follow. Uh, he has been, no, he has also, he lives in the country, he has his own garden, he's ready for the catastrophe. <laughs> he can nourish himself, kind of self-reliably. It's, now, there are many people like that, but what is you know, this Guardian article, what is so um, uh, really menacing is that you know, once the Guardian or the mainstream media disagree with someone, they condemn him rather than listen to them or engage them in debate. Because bloody hell, democracy is about debate. And those who pretend that they know they are more democratic than others, are just lying. Because we are not dem born Democrats uh, open to everything. No, we don't have to be plural. What this signal about democracies allows contrary 
convictions to govern or to shape politics of the future and to shape the, shape the environment. Now, in, in, that is another thing which Tucker Carlson talked about. There had been an, uh, a Harris poll uh, in the United States uh, about real, what federal architecture should be like, because Trump had it's one of the good things Trump did, was an edict that in the future, federal buildings should preferentially be in a classical style. Now, Trump doesn't have great taste, but anyway, classical architecture is more than Trump. And, um, and the poll asked different American electors, the independent, the Republicans, and the Democrats, what do you prefer, you know, classical or traditional? Uh, classical or, or modernist. And 73% of Republicans prefer traditional architecture. 73% of independents prefer traditional to modernist architecture. And 70% of Democrats prefer classical architecture to modernist. So it was the only subject uh, two years ago which still unified America. This was in the middle of the, in the Black Lives Matter and all the, the kind of gender nonsense. And, uh, you know, so that would have been a subject to pick up by the great media, but only Tucker Carlson uh, brought it to, to the great media. And, uh, and Künstler was also interviewed uh, an hour long by, by Tucker Carlson, actually. On the subject of what we prefer, um, uh, classical or modernist architecture, I, th I think we should bring the next image up on screen because I had a visit to Scotland and... Uh, this is a photograph taken of me standing in front of part of the Scottish Parliament's complex. And I believe that this building um, contains what they call pods, which are for the Scottish MPs to be able to sit in their own little bedsit and, and work. Um, but this is the building. Um, if you go around the far side of it, it, it looks similar obviously this is by the main uh, entrance gate which has got a security barrier but as you walk around this building um, certain certain sections of the outside wall are curved in a particular way in order to deflect blasts of explosives um, but i looked at it and, it and to me it was like a camouflage bunker a camouflage military bunker and I, I should have done a little bit more homework because I've forgotten the name of the architect that produced Mirales. it. It was a Spanish architect, am I correct? Yeah, Mirales. Yeah. yeah. What, what's your reaction to this? I hadn't seen that view, but that's even worse than what I imagined. I saw Mirales once present his drawings where he won the competition. When he won the competition, the drawings had nothing to do with an architectural project. And he won. It was like a kindergarten production with leaves glued on paper. And he won the damn, the damn competition. It shows how perverted and completely decadent you know, these juries are. They have nothing to do with architecture. Um, but this view, I mean, bunkers are usually interesting architecturally. No, they have a kind of an interesting defense look, which, which is very masculine and but powerful and, and, and also sometimes elegant. But this is just a terrible building. You know, there's an, an Italian architect uh, who said modernism is to make the easy difficult through the useless. 
And this is like the perfect, the perfect illustration of this. I mean, architecture has been resolved in all countries for thousands of years. Rich and poor made beautiful buildings, whether it's in mud or in marble. And now, even with the most expensive uh, materials, you know, the energetically the most expensive building materials, we built this garbage. I mean, even the building next to the parliament is just horrible. Let's bring that one on the screen. This is Portcullis House, which was built in order to give MPs uh, more workspace. I've actually, so we're talking about the building with all the so-called chimneys strapped on the top, but of course they're just yeah. features. And I, I've been in that building, and of course it's very oppressive the moment you go in because you're forced through what is essentially airport-type security. Not a pleasant experience. I've labelled it the crematorium because, to me, that was the first thing that came into my mind when I saw it. If, if there was black smoke belching out of the, the uh, false chimney stacks, that, to me, would have completed the image. So this is supposed to be the seat of part of the seat of our government. But when I look at the building, it's very dark. It's very oppressive. And um, interestingly, the tube station that serves that building uh, was also built on a sort of industrial minimalist approach. And so un unlike most tube stations, which are at least some attempt is made that they, they are of a nice, light, bright design, um, the tube station um, has all of the uh, metal uh, airflow ducting is laid bare. It's it's cement walls with all the cabling and and cable runs attached. And as I was travelling around the escalator, going from one level to the other, what came into my head was that I was in a chicken processing factory. It it uh, to me was also very oppressive. And for many years, I've wondered whether this is just my reaction to some of the buildings and architecture. Or is it the fact that this architecture is being created in order to impose itself on people's minds? Well, it's, it's really pathetic because it's next to one of the finest buildings in the world and ensemble and uh, to do such an... And Michael, uh, Michael Hopkins, I think, is, is the architect. He normally does even worse buildings, but he was clearly uh, trying to, to be a little more sympathetic to the historic fabric. But it's, I call it architectural stutter. Now, rather than really learning traditional architectural codes and, and, and techniques, now they, they tried to, to do the impossible, to bring language or to, to bring messages into a dead it's a dead language, no, because it's, it's not something which is an authentic. I talk about authenticity, for instance, explaining why is traditional architecture authentic, because traditional architecture around the world and classical architecture use natural materials which are from the ground, from the climate and from the soil and from the altitude to build structures which are stable, now, to do that, you have to, if you use mud or brick, you have to shape brick so you can, a hand can hold it or a piece of stone which can be carried by maximum two or three people. 
and to fit these pieces of natural material into stable bonds, that is what is traditional architecture. It's a technology of building with local materials stable structures, which protect you against climate, against erosion, and, and against the, you know, intemperate uh, situations. And whereas modernism is a product purely of synthetic materials, they are not natural materials, they are natural materials which are ground with high uh, expenditure of energy into kind of malice or a kind of flour and then mixed with water and lime and, and all sorts of and cement, uh, becomes concrete or steel, whatever, you know. And they are materials which are basically liquid, you know, liquefied, and whether it's, it's metal or, 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 or concretes or plastics, they are liquid materials which you can then shape, you can cast them in any kind of shape. But this liquidity doesn't tell you what to do, whereas brick tells you what to do, how to do an arch. Because if you don't fit it correctly, it collapses. And even an idiot cannot build a bad arch because it will not stand up. <laughs> yes. And the arch, you know, if it's logically built, they tend to be, they will be beautiful. And erosion and um, weathering of natural materials is always beautiful. Whereas concrete is a material which ages very badly, so you have to paint it or scrape it or whatever. Uh, steel rusts and, and so on. Yeah, that's so it's, it's a wrong idea to think that modern materials, modernism is authentic because it uses synthetic materials, but synthetic materials, we build the whole town in Guatemala in concrete because you no know, seismic um, uh, prescription you, you cannot build in brick. It doesn't allow it because concrete needs to be you know, it's, it's a unified structure to, to not be shaken or thrown over. But you don't see it because the only parts which you see, the cornices which are cast in concrete or the you know, paving stones, they, they get then hammered, martellinado, it's called bush hammered, and they look like granite but they're only small parts, either windows or on or so on. So the idea that uh, necessarily uh, synthetic materials would dictate your form is a lie, is a choice you have to take, what to do with these materials. And that is where modernism lies, because you know, they, it's not more modern to do straight, a straight lintel on the arch. You can cast them both. <laughs> yeah. The, okay. the only advantage is that, for instance, even a cast arch in concrete is more solid than a, a, a straight cast lintel in concrete. This part of the subject is, is just fascinating. and we, we could go on down there because I've got many questions. But if we're talking, as, as we are, about the architecture and the, and the materials for individual buildings, I'd just like to bring us on to this wider thing about the form of cities and city planning. And you're going to have to forgive me, but I've, I've, I've come back to um, Mr. Abercrombie, who was the man yeah. I encountered in relation to the, um, well, it was wartime development. It was 1943 after the bad uh, 
German bombing of Plymouth, that uh, plans for the reconstruction of the city were first considered. And then it was, I think it was 1944 when they started to really develop it. And it was post-war when Plymouth Centre was rebuilt in accordance with the large, a large part of the Abercrombie plan. Sorry, if we just put that one back on screen, thank you. So this was the Financial Times reporting on Patrick Abercrombie, the man who created London, because of course, I'm talking about Plymouth because that's the plan I know, but he did many other works. And this was work that he did in, uh, I think I can bring this up on screen a bit more. So this is the 1943 map showing how London would look based on, quote, social and functional analysis. Um, and again, I'm going to ask for your, your um, opinion on this, because uh, as we'll see in a minute, there's been some strong criticism of Abercrombie's work in relation to Plymouth. But am I right in thinking that this sort of social and functional analysis of a city of an urban area is part of the problem that design of cities has has got into the what you describe as the zoning. Is this where zoning comes from? Is it the work of Abercrombie, or have I got this wrong? Abercrombie was really a second-rate figure. I mean, he was not. He's never recognised in the even in the modernist um, uh, Bible, you know, to to be anyway of a precedent. He was just repeating formulas which had been published before. And what you see there, you know, those blobs, what they are, they are really, um, they could be misunderstood as being urban quarters, but they are not. Because they are zones for, they are colored in different colors, and they are either residential or, or retail or you know, whatever they there are categories which zoning, sub, you know, the idea that the town should no longer be mixed use or made of small towns, because that is what, what, what's the, the, the lesson of history, that large towns, the good large towns, the great large towns, are always families of small towns. Even in London, one talked about old London to be a collection of villages of Kensington and you know, Hampstead and whatever. And you still have... In, in those play in London, the core, like Bad-Size Park, or you know, these, you still have these remnants of uh, pre-modern, modern London. In Paris, these villages were developed into real urban quarters. But what the Abercrombie plan broke historically with that tradition, of the large metropolis being a family of small towns, and villages, and imposed a zone, zoned areas which would be exclusively for what is prescribed, forbidding everything else. <laughs> and it is this kind of zoning, that technique of zoning, which is the cause for modern congestion. Because you have suddenly the whole population has to drive hours and hours in trains and cars and airplanes to do daily activities. Whereas before you would generally within these blobs, you would be able to walk everything you know, for at least for a week or, or a month, a day or a week, let's say. And uh, this was the same system was applied. He still used some interesting architects like uh, Lutchens, I think, did some sketches within the Abercrombie plan. Yeah. But 
the overall was disaster, and it's, it was never executed really because it was would have meant to completely destroy historic historic London. I, I've got another image of uh, the Abercrombie plan. Now this must have been an early uh, conceptual drawing. Um, it, it was labelled the City of Tomorrow, and just to set the scene for the viewers, um, the the um, area around the words, the city of tomorrow, that is water, and the dark protruding patch, which is just above the word tomorrow, that is actually the Lido swimming pool, which is, uh, if I just move slightly, no, you can't quite see it, but it's directly behind me with the image uh, of me on screen now. So this is looking... Uh, we're essentially the view out of the UK column window is south and the Abercrombie plan, if we bring it on screen, uh, north is the top of the, the screen. So this is the city stretching away behind, uh, uh, sorry, to the north of me. And, um, and what was happening here was that there was very large damage from the bombing uh, in many areas of uh, Plymouth. And what happened immediately after the war is all the bomb damage was uh, cleared. Many buildings that were felt unsafe were pulled down. And then the centre of the city was rebuilt with these very wide streets set out in, a, in largely a grid pattern. And there were supposed to be park areas built around it in order that the thing was a coherent plan. Uh, but of course, the usual happened. They said they ran out of money. So to be fair to Abercrombie, only part of his design was put in place and the rest was allowed to fade away. Um, but if I bring this uh, comment up on screen, now I've, I've just used Wikipedia, but I think this, this one is fair. Um, this is comment um, by Sir Simon Jenkins, and he says, Poor Plymouth, it was badly blitzed in the Second World War and then subjected to slash and burn by its city fathers. The modern visitor will find it a maze of concrete blocks, ill-sighted towers and ruthless road schemes. Most of this damage was done by one man, Patrick Abercrombie, in the 1950s. The old Barbican district, that's the area around the old fishing port, the old Barbican district would, in France or Germany, have had its facades restored or rebuilt. Here, new buildings were inserted with no feeling for the texture of the old lanes and alleys. Now, I've got to say, Liam, when I, when I read that text, I know exactly what this man is talking about because um, Plymouth in its heyday, pre-war days, when it, it was a very industrious city around the uh, a huge uh, naval base and, and maritime construction industry, uh, was a very busy city. It did have um, some very beautiful buildings, but it also did have what would be regarded as slum areas. Uh, but essentially, the Abercrombie plan produced something which many would say is the worst of both worlds. So I'll throw that back to you because maybe I've been unfair on, on what was done here. No, I think <clears throat> I'm amazed that uh, Simon Jenkins is quoted by Wikipedia because they are mostly modernists. 
they're supposed to be objective. The Sam Jenkins is right uh, because <coughs> the Abercrombie plan for you know for uh, Plymouth, the same happened in Dresden, socialist Dresden, or in 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 uh, the West Berlin, because the post-war period. Now, what happens when the town is destroyed? The families which survive want to reconstruct. Because if there is money available, and normally after the war there are kind of funds, which are whether it's the Marshall Plan or you know, big banking loans, uh, are being handed out to people to, to reconstruct industries. Or In fact, instead of that happening, one put a ban on the reconstruction of the lots. Because if you look at old Plymouth, you don't look at the buildings, but at the lots, building lots, you will see hundreds and hundreds of building lots of different sizes. Now, these would be either for residents, for craftsmen, for workshops, for monastery or whatever. There, there, was, there were several churches and so on. So it was a mixed use. <clears throat> and the slummy part came really, was never one which was created uh, to start with. Slums uh, were his, in historical towns happened when there was an excessive use or the wrong use of the original uh, building site. You know, by either building too much or misusing what was maybe a craftsman shop to have polluting industries and so on. And so there was, instead of having a critical response to the industry or to the employment or to the complexity of what this town plan inherit because bombs don't destroy the underground or they used not i mean now they do but uh, in dresden for instance the reconstruction of dresden in the last 20 years happened on the old foundations because the old foundations were still there in fact the services are still there so instead of allowing the people let's say, the citizens, to rebuild their homes, they say, a ban, no, we must build a new town. What does that mean? It means not that one has a vision of a better, better society, a more modern society, because there are now different interests at, at the political and financial interests which are operating. And so these post-war reconstructions were gigantic process of expropriation and putting together either in, into corporate hands or special corporate corporation like GLC or whatever the company was called in London or what was called in, in uh, Plymouth. And in order to create a new society, a new order. But for that, there was absolutely no experience, nor any there was no experience or any real project how this society should look. When these were planned, for instance, until 1953 in Soviet Union, they were still done by extremely competent architects, or even by Nazi, Nazi architects were, were still very competent. But rebuilding this new order. But in so-called democracies, there was a small group of intellectuals and artists and architects who made who really made a coup d'etat 
and destroyed the prestige of traditional architects <laughs> and therefore took over because they said they are really over. I mean, they are part of the, they, are on, they belong to the garbage uh, heap of, of history because they are reactionaries. And um, it was unhominate destruction of the most competent, I mean, England had fantastic architects in the pre-war period still. No. Even yeah. modernists would do some charming buildings. Right. Uh, I, can, <laughs> I can add a little bit to your um, description there about what happened to Plymouth, because when you talk about the lots, I'm going to say uh, uh, the land parcels that were there uh, after, after the war and uh, as a result of the, the damage from the bombing. Uh, there were many of those land parcels that were actually, I'm going to use the word claimed by Plymouth City Council. They were parcels of land that actually belonged to residents of the city or families yeah. who, who were completely killed, wiped out in, in the Blitz. And uh, Plymouth City Council then scooped up those plots, many of them. And uh, locally, if you talk to older people, um, not so many of them about with the right age now, but they would actually say, hmm, uh, Plymouth City Council destroyed more buildings than the Luftwaffe. So yeah. you know, these are very interesting concepts. Now, I, I want to get to this subject about who is controlling um, local authorities when it comes to redevelopment issues. But before I, before I go there, I wondered whether we could um, we could have a little chat about Prince Charles or King Charles as he is now, because you've had the um, distinction of working with him very closely on the Poundbury development. And you also, in the interview that we did last time, you mentioned, of course, that he had spoken out about the quality of architecture. So I, I just wanted, I've chosen another Guardian article here. I should be, I should be told off, but never mind. Um, they they'd produced this report um, from some time ago. Sorry, I haven't got the date on it, but it is Prince Charles. And it's clearly stating what's happening here with the, with the uh, headline, Prince Charles's 10 principles for architecture. And then it says, and 10 much better ones. He's infuriated architects for more than 30 years, but Prince Charles's new set of rules for architectural practice might be his silliest intervention yet. So this is a pretty hostile article. It did, however, set out his 10 key principles. Uh, developments must respect the land. Architecture is a language. Scale is also key. Harmony, neighbouring buildings must be in tune, not uniform. The creation of well-designed enclosures, materials matter. Local woods, sorry, sorry, local wood beats imported aluminium. Limit signage, put the pedestrian at the centre of the design process. Space is at a premium, but no high rises build flexibility in. So that, that's what Charles was talking about when he was still Prince. And what what is your what is your response to those particular points that he made? Was he was the was he on the button with his criticism and his suggestions? Well, the, they are self evident and uh, reasonable, commonsensical principles, and he's one hundred percent right there. Uh, 
when he wrote his book called uh, The Vision of Britain, 1988, I, I was asked to, you know, to write a page of, on, on different themes. And the only theme which, the, because there was a kind of committee of you know, well-thinking people, the, I said there should be you know, a fundamental principle one shouldn't build higher than four floors, walkable heights. And that was the only principle which was not entered. But I see that in these principles, at least, you know, uh, there shouldn't be high-rise. Because high-rise, we are not against high-rise. And King Charles is not against high-rise. No, he's not against Big Ben or, or St. Paul's Cathedral. But the interesting thing about ancient, traditional high-rise is that they are generally one-story skyscrapers. St. Paul is a one-story skyscraper. So the limitation to building height, I think it's important to have a limitation of building heights, not metrically, but by number of floors, of usable floors. And I think if I was a dictator, oh, maybe God would <laughs> elect me to be a dictator, what would I do? I would say, don't build higher than three floors, whatever height. <laughs> yes, whatever height. Interesting. Yeah. Whatever height. Doesn't matter. Because naturally, commonsensically, it limits. For instance, what's interesting in Florence, it's the difference. All buildings have three floors, or in Rome. Historically, they have three, four floors. Uh, but the <coughs> Palazzo Ricci is twice as high as, as the other, um, as the normal houses next to it, because they just could afford it. Huh? And it is this kind of uh, limitation of practical points which I find uh, we have to, to get back to and get rid of most legislation about building because it's, it's purely to do to employ bureaucrats. It doesn't yeah. improve cities. No, I think Prince Charles is, as far as architecture and town planning goes, is 100% uh, right. And the Guardian, they hate that sort of thing. I mean, I have been called in the Guardian a racist. Well, we if a race and anti-Semite. We'll just bring this up on screen because this is uh, Douglas Murphy is actually identified as an architect. So this is a, a an article that the paper has, uh, has commissioned or bought in. And this is Douglas Murphy's response um, where he's trying to put Prince Charles, as was, down on this one. Your home is not a castle. Architecture is not a language. Um, uh, honesty that, is virtue. So we don't need to dwell on this too much. But but this this was a pretty um, uh, vicious put down of the points that Prince Charles made. Well, this this guy clearly, I can't pick out any point. Building have no language. Of course, traditional building is a language. But it's a language not to tell you, I love my mother or, you know, I feel bad. It's a language of construction. A traditional architecture itself is a technique of construction. Vernacular building is pure construction. There is virtually no character. The character comes through the use of materials and spans and openings and enclosures and pillars and so on. But <clears throat> classical architecture is a language because it uses the traditional elements of openings and, and you know, lintels and so on, 
but makes them into elements which express more than just their use mm. and makes them to objects of beauty. And why? Because public architecture is for pub basically public buildings. And in order for public buildings to stand out against the common, the, the economic fabric of the city, they are, have to be different in scale, but also in quality of material and expression. And in order for not just to be bigger size-wise, but also for this size to become aesthetic, it has to be adorned and to be a language expressing construction, not be pure construction, but also express construction. Like you know, the arch, when it is decorated, becomes a poem <laughs> yes. of construction. It's not a pure arch or a classical column is a poem about, no, a post. It's not just pure post, but really has a head and a shaft and, and, and uh, a base. And it becomes really like an organic, a new invention expressing as a language for something which is more than pure construction. So it's, it's transcending pure technology and becomes art. And that is why classical architecture is an art form of using uh, traditional techniques. Mimesis is not mimicry. Mimesis, everything in nature is mimetic. Whatever we do is mimetic. And the modernists pretending that they invent anything is just lies. Yeah. Now, they and say when we use classical traditional elements that we are mimicry. No, we are imitating arches in a technical way. And that is therefore becomes authentic of our time. Mimicry is when you, when you repeat something without understanding. You, you, you repeat the word, but you don't even know the sense. They're like, uh, I, if I had to read the Russian text, I would mimic it because I don't understand it. But, uh, but that's mimicry. So it's just uh, yep. derogatory and, and useless for, for, as principle. Right. So this, this was a pretty hard response on Prince Charles and what he had to say. And you, you've essentially um, supported the key points that, that he made. Um, but subsequently, we, we've, seen, uh, we've seen Prince Charles go heavily into some of the agenda, which I would say is beginning to adversely affect society. And what am I referring to? I'm referring to policy edicts that have been coming through the World Economic Forum, for example. And the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab uh, as an individual um, is an area that King Charles, as he now is, is, is heavily involved in. He seems to me to have been drawn away from things to do. I'm being a little bit motive here, but I think this is right with his own um, country and constitution and history. He seems to have become mesmerized by policy and ideas that have been coming out of the World Economic Forum. And yet many of those policies we see as, or I see in, as creating or wanting to create a world of a uniform, um, of a uniform nature. What, what do you think, what has caused the interest of Charles in matters to do with the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab? How has he got so enmeshed in this? 
Well, he has, uh, he has been courted by these people for a while. And um, uh, I wrote to him two years ago that he, he should dissociate himself from uh, uh, people like Klaus Schwab, who are clearly demented. I mean, they are literally, they are, they are psychopaths. And, uh, and, um, and the whole UN climate change, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with science. It's political it's a real collusion to get the world, uh, create a kind of world government uh, which, which will unify, uh, you know, with CBDC and, um, and surveillance and uh, whatever the health passports, everything which is being prepared by the VEF or by the WHO or by, by Davos is, to my mind, criminal. And I, I wrote to him that he should dissociate himself because... They are, they are really a criminal lot. And that he was actually the, the, the only public figure who had dared stand against modernism, which was another collusion of this kind. A very few people against common sense and beauty and uh, thousands of years of experience. And that maybe this would be the occasion to, to, to stand against. But, but he wrote back, this has too far gone. To, even I can't do anything about it. So... I, I try. I keep sending him material on like bright green lights. It's a very important book by Derek Jensen and Larry Keith. They take, they really analyze uh, green policies around the world and demonstrate in how far they have nothing to do with green policies. They have to do with the fourth, what they claim to be, uh, what the modernists claim to be, the fourth industrial revolution. Um, uh, which, which is essentially an, a script for, for world dictatorship. And um, I think that in, in that sense, I don't agree with him. And I think it's not good for him because he had built, I'm not a royalist. I mean, I've never been. And uh, uh, the point is that I think that he has, through his um, interventions about uh, architecture and, and agriculture and uh, those kind of you know, to have gentle policies of, of land use and, uh, and, and construction, that, which was highly critical of existing policies. But for that to be monopolized by a very small, small group of extremely powerful people who want to build a world dictatorship, and I, I think there's no other word for it, huh? a tyranny which is going to be the worst ever, and... Um, and is bad because he had built a legitimacy for, for royalty in that sense that he's no longer the, the head of the, you know, the pyramid, but he's the kind of medium who, who, who mediates between the, the top and the bottom of society. Um, I think it's, it's really important to have debates about that, what, what the role of, of a king should be and, and not ask Klaus Schwab because I think they are really psychopaths. Huh? Yeah. And most most governments which who support these UN charters are, I think they are they are really psychopaths. There's no other word. I would agree with that. Um, of course, we're not professionally qualified to call them psychopaths, but uh, we, we we can certainly believe they are, which I do. Um, again, we could we could uh, discuss this particular area more because 
getting into what a king should do, what the constitution should be. These are all uh, uh, inherent areas to do with, with nationhood and society. But can I, can I just move us on again? One of the things that I've seen happen as some of this um, oppressive architecture has come into cities, uh, I have seen very strange artwork appearing. And I've got a few examples which I'd like to pop up on screen. Um, this, this one, um, which is known locally as the chrysalid, uh, chrysalis, was sent in to me. Now, I can't remember where it was in UK, but after I started to talk about strange and rather dark artwork, public artwork appearing, people would send me in pictures of what they saw. And this is one that was sent. And whilst there's a certain fascinating interest into what these objects are, that to me, there's inherently something slightly sinister about them. This is um, uh, another piece of public artwork, a um, wicker man. Obviously, it's in, it's in metal work. I believe that one's up in Scotland. Uh, this is one from, uh, from England. Um, so this appeared in the middle of a, of a high street and very quickly it was labelled the Wicked Willy. So people uh, invariably recognised this as a phallus and nobody was able to explain why it was put there, what the real purpose was. And I have found this to often be the case. If you see some of this artwork and you try and say, where did it come from? Who proposed it? Even how much was spent on it? Very often you don't get an answer. So this one... Um, the public, the local public, recognise it as a phallus. Uh, this this one is particularly unpleasant. I've only taken a, uh, I've only got a shot of the top of it, but essentially this is about thirty foot high. It is a phallus, but the the the, the head of the phallus is a girl's face, and um, this is um, off of one of the motorways. And again, a member of the public sent it in to me. So I'm asking questions at this stage and I'm saying I'm seeing this stuff and I don't like it, uh, but I find it interesting that it's growing. This, this one I think is, is horrific. This is in Ilfracombe in Devon. So we've got a huge um, stainless steel, bronze and fiberglass statue of a naked pregnant woman. But if you were to go round to her right side, all of the skin is stripped away. So you look at her skull, you look at her rib cage, and you look at a, a baby still in the womb. If you look at the top of her right thigh, that's the skin hanging down, revealing all the muscle and sinews. And, and this was put up. There was uh, a bit of a backlash about it. But in my opinion, this is not enhancing people's lives. This is introducing something rather unpleasant. And I'll just put alongside it an old one, the Angel of the North, which is another uh, huge statue. People didn't like it at the time. You get a sense of scale in the top picture because there's a, a person uh, standing relatively close to it. It's huge, um, but it's got a rather dark feeling to it. And if I come to Plymouth, um, this is called The Messenger. It's supposed to be a character from one of the plays that the Theatre Royal um, showed in, in Plymouth. Uh, you can see the scale of the lady in a yellow jacket and the bus behind it. So this is huge. And what it does, and it's dark, what it does is 
is in my mind, it makes the human being feel very small and insignificant. This thing has a power of its own because of its sheer size. And this artwork is appearing in more and more places in UK, but it's also appearing in Europe. Um, I know that um, uh, in Belgium, uh, there are some particularly unpleasant statues which have appeared in urban squares. And I don't know whether you've come across this, but to me, it's almost like there's an ideology uh, putting its markers down. And how would I describe it? Boasting that it's started to take over our, our community, uh, our communities and indeed our architecture. Yes, it's, it's interesting that <clears throat> all these ugly and indecent uh, pieces go very well with the indecency of the architecture and makes it harmonizes in <laughs> and competes in indecency. But it's the same around the world. Uh, Tom Wolfe wrote the, wrote the book, uh, I think he, he forget now the title of the book, but was against modern modern art because it's not art. I mean, it's just statements, provocative statements who are supposed to, uh, to make you think. But what does it make you think? It makes you depressed you know, to have ugly pieces. And he called it the third in the square. <laughs> yeah. So he knew, he knew oh, what he was doing. Oh, yes. The, yeah. You know, Wall Street or Fifth Avenue, you know, Every big bank building has these disgusting pieces, so-called art. has nothing to do with art. I mean, it's just, it shows the, the, the degradation of, there are still talent born. You know, it's many, many great artists born. But they don't get these commissions to, to do the, you know, to decorate bank halls and public squares in Plymouth. It's a small, it's a mafia of, I think, People who are really indecent and perverted, somehow frustrated because an artist doesn't produce such such a horror. I mean, yeah. he wants to do something which which pleases and uh, is uplifting. Well, because it pleases himself. When I do my work, I have enormous pleasure in drawing. And people who redraw, who built my my stuff, or who, who, who illustrated painters or graphic artists or renderers or, or then builders, they also enjoy their work. Whereas in this production of this garbage, nobody has any pleasure. I mean, I can't imagine. Or they are hypocrites. Usually these people, that's what Prince Charles always joked about, that architects, most modernist architects, live in traditional homes. I had actually written a series of articles called Private Virtue and Public Vice, which is... <laughs> the, uh, now, where modernist architects live, including my boss, Jim Sterling, he always lived in traditional homes. And I told him, why can't we design buildings like your house? Oh, but that's... Uh, no. No answer. Yeah, interesting. And I had, done, I had done illustrations. I can send you the articles that were published in Brussels uh, about Rome, about Paris, about Berlin, about Luxembourg, I forget now where else, and London, of course. <laughs> because I was still yeah. living in London. And all the modernist architects, Foster, Rogers, Sterling, all these people, uh, only Hopkins lived in his own uh, modernist house in Church Row. No, 
somewhere in, in the street in Hampstead, but it was in a traditional street. So whenever he came out, it was like good old Hampstead. It was yeah. not his own, his own environment. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's fundamentally modernism is hypocritical. And because I always say, I judge an architect's work by the Kantian print imperative. What if the axiom which is behind the action of this building, be, behind the design of this building, became general law. What if all buildings of the street, of the quarter, of the town, of the country, of the continent, of the planet, were built the way this architect designs? I mean, imagine the architect of uh, the world vision of the architect Miralles of, um, of the Scottish Parliament. If this guy builds a whole town, a whole country, it's just a nightmare. Yeah. It's it, unimagined. Absolutely. That place was just appalling. I'm going to move on again, if I may, because uh, I, I wanted to get onto this subject of who who is pulling the strings. And I thought one of the ways to do it is to look at how cities sort of formulate some of their foundation planning principles. I've chosen Plymouth because that's an easy one for me to do. Let's bring the Plymouth 2014-2034 plan on screen. So here it is. And uh, to me, what have we got? Well, actually, we've got a, a map of the world. Uh, that's what I think the, uh, um, the uh, green circle and all the buildings, this to me is really something to do with the world. But then we've got all the uh, things which Plymouth City Council is... is um, considering the local community, green space and environment, arts and culture, economy, education and learning, getting around, living housing, health and well-being. And if I just bring up for what it is, the list of policies, now we start to see that it isn't just a case that the people in Plymouth are deciding what their city is going to be like, because just look at all the policies. We've got creating the conditions for economic growth, using transport investment to drive growth, dealing with flood risk, minimizing Plymouth's waste. It goes on and on. And yet this is the sort of baseline for how the city is apparently going to develop in the future. Um, so the introduction here I thought was quite interesting. So I, I've just blown this up a little bit. It says the Plymouth plan is a groundbreaking plan which looks ahead to 2034. It sets shared direction of travel for the long-term future of the city, bringing together a number of strategic planning processes. It talks about the economy, transport, housing needs, how the city can improve the lives of children and young people, how it can be healthy and prosperous with rich arts and cultural environment. I mean, everything is listed in there. Plymouth City Council is going to do it. And it went on. It says a radical agenda to, quote, transform the city. But as you read on through, um, uh, we're talking um, uh, about even more detail, including the effect of COVID-19. And the last little bit here, well, this starts to tell us what's really going on, because when you get to the end, we're talking about net zero city by 2030. And here we're clearly saying the 17 uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals 
are forming the bedrock for this development plan for the city. So I'm just going to put a bit of a crude label over this. We've got centrally controlled plans for a centrally controlled life. This is not Plymouth um, planning its future, Leon. This is the United Nations telling cities worldwide how they are to structure themselves. Yes, I think the, I mean, it is a criminal activity. Huh? It's criminal minds who are behind this because the even terms like zero carbon is is total nonsense. I mean, I was together with a partner of Foster in, in a conference in uh, um, in Madrid, and he was talk. He was the head of Ma, of the zero carbon Mazdar in uh, Dubai, I think it is, of Foster. And uh, after he said, oh, Leon, we are, you know, we share a lot of common ground. I said, I don't see it all. Because, you know, zero carbon is a lie. And he said, yes, well, ever since we started actually monitoring our buildings, we, we realized that zero carbon is not, I mean, zero carbon is, is not only impossible because you spend the carbon somewhere, to the material, whether it's spent in China or here, is 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 it doesn't matter to the planet, and uh, so it's first of all lie, and carbon is not as bad as they say. <laughs> it's it's not a problem because there are many scientists who have calculated exactly what, what is the incidence of this zero zero or whatever carbon uh, in the atmosphere. It's not. There is no threat of carbon to, to, to the planet. And um, humans can, I mean, there's another form of hubris to think that we can actually change or save the climate. Climate is climate, basta. It has nothing to do with human uh, activity. Pollution has to do with human activity, with polluting our, our lungs and our environment and our waters. That is certainly in, uh, something we can enormously help. But to change the climate is just nonsense. No, it's, it's lies. Leon, I'm just going to reinforce, I showed Plymouth's plan on screen, but of course it's not just Plymouth. Let's take it up to county level. So here's the Devon County Council plan 2021 to 25. Our plan focuses on how we will help the county to recover from COVID-19 pandemic build on the resilience of local people and communities to create a fairer, healthier and more caring place and grasp the opportunity to create a greener, greener, more prosperous and inclusive future for us all. This is all dreamland. Uh, we've got a strategic leadership team and I couldn't help uh, labelling this as are these the future leaders with a common purpose. Um, but uh, Plymouth City Council is a, is a city in the grasp of Agenda 2030. Um, Devon County Council is also captured. Uh, but of course, this is, this is UK wide, it's globally. But here's Luton together. This is quite an old one, but uh, I've... I've had it for some years, the Council's Strategy for Transformation 2011-2014. And um, it, it starts off in a very depressing way, saying that it's all about change, but change can be difficult and mean difficult choices. 
um, we face difficult and uncertain futures. So the whole thing starts off in a very depressing way, but trust us, Luton Council, because we're going to transform Luton into a green, healthier, fairer, happier city. This, this, is, this is nonsense. And yet all of this agenda is, is coming through from the United Nations and in particular those sustainable development goals. And we know that it's not UK, that's just UK that's captured by this. We're seeing the same thing in the United States and, and throughout Europe. So this is, in my opinion, globalist policy to capture the whole of the planning environment around cities and even local communities. Well, it's, it's this kind of euphemistic propaganda, which, which is uh, really the most disgusting, because they, are, they know that they are lying. And they think... I once had the uh, discussion with a theologian about arbitrariness. How arbitrary can power be? And uh, you know, that they can sell us a virus to be... Uh, controlled by a mask. And he said, well, of course, this is on purpose, because power has to prove that it's not reason which controls the world, but it's us who control the world. No. Whatever we tell you, you follow and basta. This is no longer democracy. And that is what has reigned in, in, in corporations. And now corporations who have really their you know, COVID the pandemic is really a corporate takeover of the world. It's very clear. It's destruction of small-scale industries and, uh, and, and retail around the world. And yet it's sold as if it was all for our interest. And it's, it's really preparing us to be forever prepared to live in a state of emergency. And that emergency can be declared. I mean, you talk about this either by the WHO or, you know, WEV, World Economic Forum, or whatever. And, but they are globally linked, and they are coordinated. And the COVID policy was a testing ground, and it worked extremely well for their part, but destroyed large, large segments of societies. And, uh, and to sell this as if it was all for our safety is just lies. Yeah. Unfortunately, they are very, but there are very good documents like I quoted this Patrick Wood, the, the rise of technocracy, is, is basically a criticism of, um, of UN uh, 2030 policy, how that is really a plan to take over you know, global, globally to destroy democratic society or whatever is left of it. Yes. And, um, and also the, this bright green lies by Derek Jensen, they are formidable. You know, to, to really call the bluff call their bluff because they are lies. I mean, like bombing, sending bombs to Ukraine for peace. How disgusting can you go as politician Anna Great Baerbock, Anna Lynn Baerbock, foreign minister of Germany, and to speak this language and say she doesn't care about her, her electorate. She cares about the people of Ukraine. We're into another subject where there is so much. I'm, I'm going to say that I, I think we've come probably to a natural break point here. Um, it's been really fascinating to go through these areas with you and to, to hear your 
comments and uh, professional opinion on what's taking uh, place with architecture and planning. I'm going to bring one image up on screen as a little taster because I'm going to say straight away to the audience, I'm hoping that you'll come back and do a part three with me. Um, I'm putting on screen one of the images you sent about some of uh, some of your own work. And I think I'd like to give you proper opportunity to do that. But I think we must close today. So would you be happy to come come back and do a part three? Absolutely. Uh, free of charge. Free of charge. All right. That, that's wonderful. Well, uh, I would certainly like to show the audience some of the image of those project images that you shared with me. That would be great to do. And also, um, I think there's a sort of section of this subject that we could we could also we also need to cover. And that is that we could have a look at some of the images of these new super cities that are emerging. We've got a linear city, which is uh, which is being built now in the in the uh, Middle now, East. Yeah, yeah. Um, I find these things. I find them. I use that word scary. There's just something about them which is inhuman. But um, they're cr they're criminal. I yeah. mean, there's no other. Word. They're crimes against against humankind. Right. Well, I, I think what we need to do is to show our audience what we're talking about and why we think there's problems. So if you're kind enough, brave enough to come back with UK Column for a, for a round three, that would be really lovely. Great. <laughs> Love to. OK, we'll Thank end. Thank you very much, Brian. We'll end there, Leon. Thank you very much for joining me today. I hope you won't be shut down because of me. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so, but uh, who knows? If we're shut down because of you, it will mean that we have a really fantastic video that we will touch. go everywhere. <laughs> All right, we, we'll end it there. Thank you very much for joining me. Bye-bye.